We have been in the book of Romans for a while now, and we've taken a long break, haven't we? Uh, last week, we were able to hear from Mike Cater and what's going on in Nepal and India, and then, or two weeks ago, then last week, we were able to hear about the awesome stuff that God's doing through safe families. It's been two great weeks. Tonight, we're going to jump back into Romans, but we need to kind of catch up to where we're at, because we're in chapter 12, and there's a lot that happened between chapter 1 and 12. So for those of you who weren't here, we're going to do a little bit of review. So quiz time, and this is going to test your memory. If you get it right, you get candy, and you might get your favorite candy. But there's no Werther's Originals in here, I'll tell you that. That's cheap candy. It's got some quality candy. Um, so in chapters 1 through 4, Paul tells this church at Rome and us that the gospel declares God's righteousness and our what? Who said depravity? All right, here we go. Oh, man, that was weak sauce. Okay, so these unsaved Jews, they live alongside these new Christian Gentiles, and they needed to hear this message from God through Paul because they wrongly believed that salvation was earned, both through their Jewish ethnicity and their adherence to the law. They didn't understand grace so in chapters 5 through 8, Paul t takes it a step further and says that salvation is through another type of family lineage, not just simply by being ethnically Jewish. He wrote that the gospel creates a new blank and a new blank. If you just get one of them right, you get candy. What's that? Humanity. That's right. Exactly. A new family and a new humanity. Who said that? All right. Can you give this to Sandra, Timmy? Can you go give that to Sandra? Okay. Good job. I'm not picking on him because he's my son. He's just standing right, he's right up here, and I know he can catch it. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, we live in, if we know Jesus Christ, he's made us a new creation. We are a new humanity. Actually, the name Adam means humanity, and Jesus is the new Adam. So, our broken, sinful nature has been restored through Christ, who leads this new family called the kingdom of God. All right. Candy opportunities are coming to a very quick close here. So in chapters 9 through 11, we said this is the third section in Romans, and it communicates how the gospel fulfills God's promise to... Someone mumbled Israel. Oh, very good, Justin. I should have known. Justin's a Bible scholar. And Justin, because that one was a little more difficult, you get a slightly nicer candy. So I'm going to throw this, watch your heads, cover up. Oh, that actually might have opened up. So if it did, eat it anyway. Justin won't care. He's a noble savage. Uh, he really is, and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, you see, so Paul, with spirit-led discernment, knows at this point in the letter, they would logically conclude that God's promise to Israel had failed. Because remember, these Jewish uh, folks had been wrongly taught that salvation was through the law and being racially Jewish. So they would have thought that God flipped the table on them and was saying, no, salvation is through Christ. And Paul's saying, no, the word of God has not failed. Salvation has always come to those who are spiritually Jewish, those who looked forward to the finished work of Christ before he came, and those looked back to his finished work after he came. So true Israel. And finally, last opportunity for candy here, guys. We'll see in this last and fourth section, the one we're in now, the assurance that the gospel alone can blank the church. 
Unite. Who said unite? That was Joy. Joy's a Bible scholar, too. Joy, do we want a Kit Kat or Twizzlers? Kit Kat, okay. Someone yelled Kit Kat on her behalf. All right. Oh, everyone was afraid to catch it. Come on, guys, put a hand up. Bring it down. That, oh, yeah, yeah, I got a couple more, Sonny. I'll give them to you after. Uh, so this torn-up church certainly needed unity in Rome, didn't they? You can almost feel the hurt and pain, the arguments aimed at Gentiles by Jews who said, no, you have, to, oh, uh, you have to follow the Jewish holidays. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the Jewish dietary laws to be saved. And then the Gentiles shooting back. I'm reading between the lines here, but maybe saying to the Jews, no, your heritage doesn't even matter anymore. It's all about salvation through Christ alone. Jesus abolished the law, so all this stuff, it doesn't even matter anymore. Lies growing like cancer among them, insecurity, anger. Only the gospel can heal. It's only the miracle of the Holy Spirit's work to unify us that we don't tear each other apart. Isn't it? So what we have here is a precious gift of the Holy Spirit, a unified church, and we protect it. And we'll read about that tonight. So we said that chapter 12 marks the transition from what the gospel does in us to then what the gospel does through us. So chapters 1 through 11 through chapter 12, verse 1, that whole section is about what the gospel does in us, our identity in Christ. And then uh, chapter 12 through the end of the letter is all about what the gospel does through us. We can't, we can't correctly understand how the gospel works through us until we know what the gospel does in us. And that's why it starts in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So all that we do in ministry for Christ must be done in view of God's mercy. Don't we so often skip over that one phrase? It's in view of God's mercy. In that one phrase, Paul is tying up all that he said in chapters 1 through the end of chapter 11. We can't offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in ministry to Christ and to his body unless we understand what it is to view life through God's mercy. We simply cannot meditate, reflect, pray on our identity in Christ enough. It is not a 101 class. Identity in Christ is what carries us. And that's why in this section, he seems to add some weight to his tone. He pleads, I urge you, brothers and sisters. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. He's not simply commanding, he's, commanding, he's urging, he's pleading. And the word urge here in the original language means to motivate based on a previous argument. So he's building on what he's been saying all the way through the letter. He's saying, if we don't understand the gospel in us, we'll never really experience the gospel's work through us. We'll remain frustrated in our relationship to other people in the church, feeling isolated regardless of uh, favorable uh, outward circumstances. We'll feel isolated. We'll feel disconnected. We might feel like church is a waste of time, and spending time with the community of believers is something that doesn't bring us life. Our outreach outside of the church will be hollow and motivated by a sense of duty instead of compelled by the love of Christ if we don't understand the gospel in us. So put another way, chapters 1 through 11 answer the big question, what difference does the gospel make in us? 
Then chapter 12, through the end of the letter, answer the big question, what difference does the gospel make through us to those around us? So with that said, we'll jump into Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Lord, please help us to understand what you're saying here. Lord, help us right now not to be intellectually lazy or to turn off our minds or to let the enemy whisper lies to us that make us feel insecure in the seat we're sitting in right now. Lord, we thank you that there's no condemnation in you, that you live to make intercession for us, that you've removed our sin as far as the east is from the west, and no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, you brought us here tonight because you want to give us good and great and fantastic and ridiculously gracious and valuable gifts that money can't buy, that are eternal So, Lord, help us to turn our minds on and the distractions off and read and understand and do what you have for us. By your grace and in your name, Jesus, amen. So let's think together with the mind of Christ. Let's not go to sleep. Let's work hard to understand his word and pray for grace to apply it. Sound good? Thumbs up? Thumbs up. Let's do it. Let's try that again. I really was hoping for thumbs up. There we go. Woo! I like it. Appreciate the little, little shout there. That's good. It's the coach coming out in me. You know, I love to do that kind of stuff. I just do. So Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So this transformed life that Paul speaks of requires a certain prescription for us to to put on and see correctly and walk in correctly. We'll miss it without the Spirit who gives us the ability to see, experience, and walk in this transformed life. The gospel does something huge in us then according to Romans 12.3 here. The gospel allows us to correctly see ourselves. In a world that Uh, either ask us to ignore our faults or numb ourselves from our faults or inflate our strengths to try to look like something we're not. In a world that makes us insecure with every magazine article we read about dieting, with every blog we read about having better relationships, Christ, through the gospel, allows us to see ourselves correctly and in that find freedom. Verse 3 says that the gospel gives us a correct estimate of self by enabling us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Late author C.S. Lewis says that he only knew Christians as a people who were able to admit to pride and conceit. We're also told in this same verse to think of ourselves with sober judgment. And the idea here, this idea of sober judgment, what the original audience would have heard is that we need to be rigorously accurate and completely in touch with reality, not putting a smokescreen over who we really are. We're not to think too low or too high of ourselves. And the sobriety of our judgment, according to this verse, is to be in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, many people have wrongly interpreted this verse to say that we all get like a different measure of faith. You know, Carson has high-octane faith, you know, and um, uh, I got to be careful who I choose for this one because I don't want to hurt their feelings. Uh, Kimball has low octane faith, and uh, Derek has medium octane faith. You know, I know all those people, so I can, can say that. 
Uh, but that's not what he's getting at here. He's not saying we have this different amount of faith, and some of us are super Christians, and some of us are weaker. That's not what he's saying. Uh, the word measure that's used here is the Greek word metron, from where we get the word meter. And what this most likely means is it's a standard of measurement, not an amount. In other words, Paul's saying, all of you here are living and, and walking and believe in Christ and him uh, crucified and raised from the dead. And that is how you're to measure yourselves. So this means we need, first of all, to realize that we're, we're all the same in Christ. Regardless of our background, our abilities, and so forth, we're all saved in Christ, and he loves us equally. So this is incredibly freeing. We can face our weaknesses without anxiety and desperation because they don't define us. We're loved by the ultimate judge, and he, he can't love us any more than he loves us right now, regardless of where we're at. On the other end, our strengths don't fill us with pride because we know that which we've been saved from and to. So we're protected from dangerous pride in our strengths, remembering the gift of faith given to us by Christ that makes us saved sinners. And when we look at our weaknesses, we remember that the gift of faith makes us exalted saints. This new perspective is huge because it makes us sober. And how many of you associate sober with something good and exciting? You know, typically when we think of that word, we have a couple raise their hands. Good, good. Uh, most people, when they think of sober, think of being asked to eat their vegetables or pay their taxes, you know, or basically rein in what they naturally want to do. You know, we think of it as a bad thing, but I tell you what, if you talk to a recovering addict, sobriety is a beautiful thing. I have a really good friend who's a recovering alcoholic, has been for years, and he said, Chris, when I started getting sober, I was so isolated. I would, there'd be times where it'd be 3 o'clock, and I wouldn't know if it was a.m. or p.m., because I was so knocked out. And I met my wife. I found my vocation, my purpose in life. I, I, I realized that I could be in real relationships. It's like the whole world opened up to me. You know, it's like a movie buff drawing a line between the difference of an old fat back black and white TV and a big HD surround sound movie theater. Sobriety is a great thing. The gospel sobers us in all the right ways so that we can live real, joy-filled, abundant lives. And this changes the way we view others. If we have a sober view of ourselves, we can face our weaknesses we can face our strengths knowing that Christ is the one who defines us. We don't have to worry about how weak we are in this moment or how strong we are because we know he promises to complete the good work that he started in us. And his glory is at stake and he will complete what he's promised to do. So then that moves us into a place where now we can view others rightly. Once the gospel redeems our view of self, it frees us to truly love others. And that's uh, really the second point, main point in this chapter. Right view of self and then a right view of others. Gospel view of self, gospel view of others would be another way to say it. So Romans 12, 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. 
Isn't that interesting that we're not only to walk out the gifts, but he also cares about our heart and how it cares. Only the life that has been transformed by the gospel can correctly walk out these gifts. So Paul starts out, just as each of us, for just as each of us has one body. And he starts with that word for, for just as. And this clues us in on the fact that he's continuing to represent the argument that the Lord's been making all through this letter. He says that the life renewed by the gospel resulting in a freeing and sober view of self, or you could say a new and freeing gospel identity, places us correctly and rightly in a harmonious and fruitful relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church. The gospel alone unifies the church. This new way we're given to think about other believers through the gospel uses the illustration of a body. So the next time you look at yourself in the mirror, let's not be so selfish to, you know, at least in my case, to to draw attention to my growing belly or the size of your nose. And it's big. It is. Your nose is big. Uh, Or the fact that your ears, you feel like, look like Dumbo. They do. They, or they might, you know. But to, instead of getting focused on all those things we can become insecure about, next time you look at your body in a mirror, let it be a reminder of our relationship to the church. So every part is the same in that it helps bring life and productivity, but every part has a different function. The heart pumps the blood that fuels the muscles to give the arm strength to carry the child or throw the baseball. So we have different gifts that all contribute to the work of Christ in the church. This image of a body, once again, keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. The arm doesn't become prideful and think it can work independently from the lungs. The arm fails to function without the lungs, and the lungs lack purpose without the arms. Isn't it interesting? And you've done this. You don't have to raise your hand. I know you've all done it. Oftentimes, we have a gift we want. And then we have a gift we have. And sometimes we don't walk in the gift we have because we're jealous of the gift we want. I think most believers fall because we are a culture of American Idol. We want to be on the stage. And we can miss our gift. You know what helps plant a church more than any other? The service gift. I would never plant a church without at least 15 people who are willing to give 15 hours a week or more to the hard, excruciating, sometimes thankless, but incredibly fruitful and life-giving work it takes to plant a church. You know, I think of Jordan McWhorter and Emily Huber, who did stuff that nobody else wanted to do. These, well, they were different back then, but these uh, sound-baffling deals, I'm probably calling them what they're not, but I don't know about that stuff. But putting, you know, putting the fabric around them, painting and painting the walls, passing out thousands and thousands of flyers, going on prayer walks, every single week, sometimes multiple times a week, doing outreach projects, serving in ministries that you don't necessarily feel gifted to serve in, but you got to do it because there's no one else to do it and it's got to get done. Service, the gifts no one sees. That gift of service, I believe, is absolutely critical to a church plant, to any new work of the gospel, uh, church plant or otherwise, home group, what have you. So just to give us a quick, quick, quick introduction to these gifts, um, they're broken up into three categories, and not all the gifts are given here, but they're given elsewhere in the New Testament. 
speaking gifts, which are a prophecy, teaching, exhorting, knowledge, leading gifts, which is uh, government, which would be the work of the elder and the pastor, administration, wisdom, serving gifts, uh, giving, mercy, hospitality, miracles, tongues, and their interpretation, and healing. And some people would put these latter three in a separate fourth category called sign gifts, but I really feel like they're more service gifts for the body. Uh, so these individual gifts can be defined, uh, and I'm just going to give kind of a uh, you know, 10,000-foot view of these gifts. First is prophecy in verse 6. And I don't think this is, uh, I, I think there are several types of prophecy in Scripture based on the word that's used. And I don't think this is a divinely inspired message like what was given in the Old Testament. I do think there are places in the New Testament where prophets speak a word directly from God uh, that becomes canon, basically. When a prophet speaks, that becomes canon. It's God's word. Um, I believe this is a different type of prophecy here in Romans 12. It seems to mean preaching an anointed utterance, an already established word of God, like when, and you've probably had this happen, I know I have, when someone shares a timely verse with you just when you need it, and it speaks to you so much louder than it normally does because they knew, the Spirit told them, that that's what you needed at that uh, precise moment. Um, and then there's service in verse 7, again, which is one of my favorites. Uh, it comes from the word diokonia, which means practical service. People with the gift of service are good at the practical task and good at administration. They're great team workers, and they don't need the spotlight. Tell you what, Brandon Rorig and Katie Rorig, right back there every week before Brandon was paid, years before he was paid, now that he's paid, this guy is serving, and he's taking our church to new places because of the gift he has and what he's doing online for us. What He's always kind of coming up with creative ideas, drawing Kimball and I back. We're like two ADD. I shouldn't say ADD. I'm sorry for those of you who have ADD. I'll use another word. The spastic school kids who need to be brought back into line. And Brandon does that, uh, keeping us focused on what needs to happen. So I think of people like my mom, people like Melody Marshall, and so many others, too many to name. But let's give Brandon and Katie a hand. They have worked so many years in this church. They are the real deal. Plus, they're so precious back there. I mean, it's such a cute young couple. I'm up here teaching, and I look at them, and I'm, ah, I love those guys. I did their premarital counseling, and they're, they, they are just the real deal. I've, I've, I think I learned more during our premarital counseling from you in my marriage than you learned from, from us. So, um, Then there's giving. Or let me back up. Sorry, way back up. There's uh, teaching. This is a gift of making truth clear, and this is in verse 7, making truth clear and understandable. A good teacher may not be a preacher and vice versa. Teaching gifts can vary greatly. Some are better in small groups, other in others in large groups, some with children, teens, peers, and so on. Then there's this really cool gift, encouragement, in verse 8. This is the word parakaleo, which means to come alongside. Isn't that awesome? Encouragement is a good translation, but it also could include what today we call counseling. It doesn't have to be professional, but uh, this is one who brings support and inspiration. Encouragers don't have to necessarily be formally trained. They can serve as advisors, supporters, greeters, welcomers in many ways. These are the people that when you're around them, they speak to you, and it makes you feel as if Christ is putting his arm around you and saying, I believe in you. I made you. I'm going to use you. That's what an encourager does. Even if you've totally blown it, 
I, you know, I've been, my, my pastor, my very first pastor, uh, who's a great guy, I still get together with him often, even when he would rebuke me, I would leave and go home and say, Becky, I think I just got rebuked by Jim, but somehow I feel like I just got a hug from my grandfather and was handed a Werther's original, you know, and <laughs> somehow I feel like I can take on the world even though I think I was just rebuked. You know, that's what an encouragement is like. And then there's the giver in verse 8. People with this gift not only enjoy giving in unusual proportions, may they be many and may they attend this church, uh, but they're wise in their gifts so that we can do kingdom work and so that I can drive a Hummer to church. No, I'm just kidding. I don't even know. I'm totally kidding. For the record in the recording, I'm kidding. I don't want to buy a Hummer with church money. Uh, and when they give, they do so with great wisdom and God multiplies their dollars and great kingdom work is done through them. They're cheerful givers and they lead us in cheerfully giving. Regard, and you can have the gift of giving even without giving a lot of money. There are people in this church, I'm not going to embarrass them, but let me tell you what, they make almost nothing, and they give so much. Of their time and their money, you would be amazed. Leadership, verse 8. Leaders are people with the gift of getting people to follow them in Jesus' name and in his service. As they follow the chief shepherd, King Jesus, they're able to inspire others through the Holy Spirit's power and grace to a kingdom vision. Uh, mercy, verse 8. There are many people gifted in mercy in this church. This is a gift of people specifically moved to work with the poor, the sick, the weak, the prisoner, the addicted, the elderly, and so on, even when they don't get paid back. They are very good at the ministry of interruption because people in those situations, they have problems when they have problems and they need help when they need help. And that's what Jesus did, right? He was constantly being interrupted. Um, now, the spiritual gifts can be a little confusing, can't they? And I want to simplify them tonight by giving you just really what Paul said right here in this passage of how we can learn and walk in our spiritual gifts. It's not complicated. Many of us get all obsessed with, what are my spiritual gifts? What are my spirit? I'm about to simplify it here right now. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you. It's going to be awesome. You don't need to take some big battery of tests or anything like that. I mean, you can, but you don't really need to. I'm going to give you the life hack here for spiritual gifts, uh, or the Holy Spirit is. So first is self-examination. Paul wants us to think of yourself with sober judgment in verse 3 with regard to our gifts. So to begin with, we can look at our heart, our feelings to discover our gifts. We can. That's part of it. So what do you enjoy doing? What kind of ministry is attractive and inviting to you? Who, who, do you, who would you carry if they made spiritual gift trading cards, like I said about Frank and Pam? Whose cards would be on the front page of your notebook? I was a baseball card collector as a kid, and my favorite players were on the very first page of my notebook. So who would be on your front page? Would it be missionaries? Would it be, Pat? Would it be people with the gift of mercy? What is it that you're, what kinds of people in the body of Christ are you attracted to? What gifts are you attracted to? What problems do you most notice? Do you feel burdened for the poor, for people with counseling needs? Do you feel like the church is too disorganized? I know you don't hear, but at other churches that you've been involved in. Uh, in other words, it's possible that you're especially sensitive to the kinds of needs that God has called you to meet, that you'll notice it. Brandon, for instance, notices that we're a little disorganized and has helped us there. Um, you may, and the best thing to do 
is not to sit around and wait to figure out your spiritual gift. Just start serving. It's a lot easier to steer a car that's moving than a car that's standing still. So you just move forward in obedience, and the Lord will help you revise what your gifts are as you move forward. But just move forward. Start scrubbing the toilets. Start sharing your faith. You know, we're called to do the work of an evangelist, even if we're not an evangelist. Just step out in his name. Don't, don't sit on your gifts. Um, all right. So we're to use it in verse 6, and then we're to do it. We're to walk out these gifts in verse 8. Um, I'm going to move on for time's sake. In verse 9, we're told that we must use these gifts from the right heart. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Serving other believers through the use of our gifts must come from true love, and real love is sincere. We're not talking about simply being nice. We're not talking about a veneer, you know, a plastic smile when we come to church. Sincere love can be tough love. Because remember, almost all the letters Paul wrote to the church were letters of discipline. I mean, they're very tough letters to read. Because he and us, we don't, we don't want our brothers and sisters to get caught up in strongholds through pride and indifference and to conforming to the world. We want them to experience what it is to, to walk in the love of Christ and to walk in the supernatural gift or gifts that he's given us. So negatively, sincere true love, it says that we're to hate what is evil and positively we're to cling to what is good. Uh, and you know, that's how love works, doesn't it? If you truly love someone, you love what they love, and you hate what they hate. The longer I've been married to Becky, I hate and love pretty much the same things that she does. Uh, but, you know, tonight, my dad is here. Wave your hand, Dad. He's, go ahead, wave your hand. He's here from Florida. We don't hate him for that, even though it's so warm there right now. Uh, but, you know, he's my dad, and, and because I love him very much, and I love what he loves and hates what he hates. Like, for example... I grew up watching, watching Ohio State games with him, at least as a teenager. We both love Ohio State. It's our favorite team. And we also both hate Michigan, okay? I mean, we hate them in Jesus' name. I mean, I can't say that. Uh, I don't hate them as individuals, just as an entity. Um, I repent, Lord. I repent of that statement. Uh, but also, you know, on a uh, different note, a little more obscure love-hate relationship, we both have this weird thing with light. And I don't mean like a spiritual light. I mean like light, light. Uh, I grew up with my dad. You know, he, he loves low lighting. Like, uh, let's say, a lamp with a shade on low. You know, and, and I love that kind of lighting too. Like warm, soft, the fireplace, the... Overhead lights like this, we call them harsh overheads. And my kids have grown up hearing my hatred for harsh overheads. We have these uh, recessed lights in our ceiling that I call eyeballs. And I feel like I'm being interrogated by them whenever they're on. So I make the family turn those off whenever I'm home and turn on the, you can barely see in our house. You know, that, that's how I like it. The ambiance is important to me. And uh, for instance, when I go into a big box store like Walmart, I literally feel like those fluorescent lights are draining my energy like your smartphone when it's trying to run too many apps. I mean, I'm so, I, I want to take a nap every time I'm in a big box store. So I don't know, you health nut people, you might know something about lighting, but we both have those, that love and hate relationship. Uh, so in order for love to be sincere, it must contain love and hate. 
We need to love what God loves, and we need to hate what he hates. God hates injustice and oppression and racism and abortion and divisiveness and pornography and materialism, and so must we when we're walking in the Spirit. He loves humility and patience and people and generosity and reaching the world and kindness and grace and mercy and selflessness, and so must we. Romans 12.10 says that love, this love that is to be carried out even in our gifting within the body, in verse 10, is to be devoted to one another in love. Love is to be committed, does not forget or belittle others. True love honors others. In Romans 12.10, the second part, it says, honor one another above yourselves. And verse 16 says pretty much the same thing, so it's important. The simple command is to think more about the needs of others than our own needs. This takes a radical work of the Spirit. And let me tell you what, I'm not there. I think more about my own needs. But I'm, I'm asking the Lord to change me there. Along the same lines, verse 11, never be lacking, talking about sincere love, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I see this in Frank and Pam. Man, they're like little kids when they talk about Jesus and his love and his grace. It's contagious be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And we learned about hospitality last week in Phil's great talk. These three verses are challenging us to use all our spiritual resources to persevere and not give up on our brothers and sisters. That means those who rub us the wrong way, who annoy us, who disagree with us politically have a slightly different perspective on effective ministry or uh, non-essential theological issues. Don't give up on unity. And especially, especially, don't give up on your brothers and sisters when they're struggling. Whether it's addiction, whether it's a sexual issue, whatever it might be, that's especially when we don't give up on them. Christians are great at kicking one another while we're down. You know, God's story is filled with believers who blew it. Practically every personality in the Old Testament blew it. And many of you are saying right now, but hey, Chris, in the New Testament, when the Spirit came, we have almost no examples of people blowing it. I want to correct that misconception. That's not true because I know that's been taught quite a bit. First of all, we don't really hear a whole lot about many individual examples in Scripture. We get little bits and pieces, but nothing like the detail we get in the Old Testament. And keep in mind, like I said a few moments ago, most of the letters written by Paul are written to churches that are completely off the reservation in terms of the sinful choices they're making. They were messed up just like we can be messed up. That's why we're told to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. We're told, if, we're told if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should go and restore them gently. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And so it's the kindness of Christ through us that leads to repentance. It doesn't mean we need to be soft on sin, but it needs, we, means we need to be radically dedicated to unity. So not giving up on another believer could be as profound as loving someone caught in addiction, faithfully serving them even when it's inconvenient and when they keep messing up. Or it could be as simple as helping someone move. You know, I think we helped about 4 million people move as a body. I mean, a lot of us did uh, when we planted the church. 
Not giving up on another believer can look like not crucifying one another on social media. Man, especially two years from now, that's going to rip the church apart. If you disagree politically, please don't air that out on social media. It's not only divisive in the church, the world is watching and it's ruining our witness. Because the main thing is the salvation of souls. And it paints believers in a bad light and sullies our witness when they see us fighting online. It's ridiculous. We'd never fight like that in person. Not to mention when you air your political beliefs in a contrary manner online, you're not able to clarify and defend your position. So whole demographics of people will likely discount your witness for Christ because they'll paint you in a negative light because you can't even defend what you're saying. So choose to talk in person or at least on the phone. It's okay to share your convictions, but stand up and be a real man, a real woman. Don't be a coward and share voice to voice. It's too easy to write down a quick, cutting remark. It's lazy. Plus, we should never write stuff down when we're in conflict. You should always say it voice to voice. Just let that be a rule. When you violate, every time you violate it, it'll come back to bite you. Trust me. Every note you write, every email you write, every text you write in a conflict will come back to bite you because people can't see body language. They write stuff in between the lines. It's not there. Follow that little tidbit of advice, and it, it, might, it might save you a lot of very valuable relationships. Seek to understand the other, position, the other person's position first. Ask lots of questions, at least five, as a discipline rule. And attempt to place yourself in their shoes. Then maybe share your position. First, they got to their, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to demonize them. They got to their beliefs for a reason. So listen to them. Hear them. This is the most caustic political climate in decades, and Christians are more divided than ever on political lines. African-American brothers and sisters and white believers are divided. Have you ever thought about the fact that your political hot-headedness or mine online could make a person or a whole group of people feel unwelcome at our church? Do you realize that the African-American church is now, they are leaving the evangelical church in the thousands because they think we hate them and they don't feel defended by us. It's because we write things down without first see, uh, online, in social media, without first seeking to love. We are not to be known for our radical politics, but our radical love. Love comes first. Everything else is just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We love, we hear their story. Then maybe we share our convictions. Oftentimes when I hear someone's story, I don't share my convictions because now I know where they come from and where they're at is so much more important and the ministry they need is so much more important than me trying to correct their politics. So Kimball and I don't use social media much. We're kind of becoming old men in that regard, for good or bad. But if we see a nasty political argument on social media, we'll treat it like you're talking to that person face-to-face as we move into the next two years here, and we will mediate it as such as a conflict in the church. We'll confront it head-on, and I think you should too. And I will do it with anyone and anybody from a kid all the way up to a 100-year-old man, no matter who they are we are going to confront disunity in the church. 
as we move toward the primaries in a couple years. The gospel not only builds us a love for our brothers and sisters, it also empowers us to love our enemies. And I'm going to fly through this next part. The worship team is going to come on up here. In Romans 12, verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of a low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Really, the exhortation in this passage is simple, and it's repeated twice. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, verse 17, and then verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word overcome is a military expression, and it could not be more powerful. It means to overpower. Paul says that to repay evil with evil is immediately to lose the battle against evil. The only way to defeat evil is by doing good to the one who has done you harm. So in other words, when someone wrongs us, evil wins when we seek revenge. We must separate evil from the evildoer, or it'll feel right to pay back the evildoer when they do wrong, and that only feeds the fires of hell. It reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. Anyone who used the ring of the evil Lord Sauron to defeat him became evil in the process because they were using the enemy's weapons. It's sincere love that wins the day. Now, keep in mind, this church was experiencing radical persecution inside and out. So this command was harder for them to apply than it is for us today. Some of you might be thinking, hey, come on, Chris. How can I love my enemy or someone who doesn't love me back? How can I do that? Because it's, it's a little countercultural, isn't it, to, to love someone who hates you or in context here, love people who are trying to kill you. In many cases, the Roman government. So here's what happens when the gospel invades our hearts. We see ourselves before Christ. We see that we were once enemies of the cross, and we see his unbelievable grace towards us when we love our enemies, and it actually helps us to repent. We actually experience a deeper personal repentance when we love our enemies because we're reminded of our salvation. We preach the gospel to ourselves louder and deeper than any other single act when we love our enemies. Let me offer some practical ways here in closing for us to love our enemies. First, don't avoid a hostile person. It says in verse 8 that we're to seek peace at all possible, so don't avoid them. But let me uh, clarify here. This is not asking us to go into abuse, an abusive or dangerous relationship because that enables evil. And Paul just commanded us to hate what is evil, right? So that's not what he's asking here. That would be enabling and unloving. Second, express love with words and actions. We're to practice hospitality. Phil did a great job of explaining that last week, so I'm not going to explain it again. We bless and we do not curse. We don't seek revenge, not even passive revenge, like the cold shoulder or being passive-aggressive or giving the silent treatment. The gospel allows us to enter deeply into the heart of another because only if Jesus is our main joy will we, will we be able to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. For example, if someone is single and wishes to be married, I know there's none of those in this room, 
It'll be difficult to rejoice with your friend who is getting married if marriage is an idol, meaning marriageability is your righteousness. Then it'll be impossible to rejoice. But if he is our joy, we can experience both honest grief over our singleness because we want something good, we want to be married, and sincere joy for our friend's marriage. Similarly, unless Christ is our righteousness and peace, it'll be hard to enter into the grief of others. We may have trouble sympathizing with people we despise or feel superior to, but the gospel tells us that we're not superior in any way. It brings us down to a right appraisal of self. The gospel tells us that Jesus loved us even when we were his enemies, so we can love those we naturally despise. The gospel enables us to truly mourn with others as well because we don't need to convince ourselves that life is good. If we don't understand the gospel, we tend to belittle or minimize someone else's pain. That's why people sometimes put kind of a plastic coating over difficult situations saying dumb and thoughtless things like, God wanted her in heaven, or it'll all work out, or hey, others have it far worse. A believer walking with Christ, preaching the gospel to herself, knows that life is difficult and sin and evil abound, so suffering will continue until King Jesus comes back. In the gospel, we find Jesus, who when facing the cross said, take this cup from me. That's how he felt. But he decided, not my will, but yours be done. And he said, Father, forgive them. This is the transformed life. And I want to challenge us, going into Thanksgiving and Christmas, you might have an opportunity to forgive someone. Be radical. There is no, there is no better witness than the sweet and healing balm of forgiveness. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's a friend. If the gospel is truly in us, then it'll work through us. It will fix and correct our distorted view of self and moves us to deep change where we, for both ourselves, to see ourselves as both saved sinners and exalted saints. The gospel will enable us to love others using our spiritual gifts and loving our enemies. And a simple litmus test for is the gospel working in us, a simple litmus test, it's very simple, and that's this, are we forgiving others who have hurt us? Truly forgiving, not just kind of with our mouths, but truly forgiving, and are we serving others in the church? It's that easy. Are we serving others in the church, and are we truly forgiving others? Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, how it challenges us. Lord, we can only live this life if we view our walk with you, these calls to obedience in view of God's mercy. So help us, Lord, to drink deeply of your mercy and your grace, to understand our identity, Lord, and to walk uh, in this supernatural, sincere love. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.